0: Miscarriages of justice and unsafe convictions happen more frequently than you might think. They happen due to forced confessions, unreliable forensic evidence, mistaken identifications and even inadequate defence representation. Miscarriages of justice result in the destruction of lives, with the wrongly accused often tragically spending years behind bars. Compiled and created in the height of the COVID-19 lockdown by the Maynooth University Evidence Class of 2020.
1: This is... Injustice is Served. This episode is Sleeping With The Angels, the story of Sally Clark. This episode is brought to you by myself, Cameron, your delightful host, and of course, Fiona, Isabel, Luke, Liam and Dylan. You won't hear from everyone, unfortunately, but everyone has done some research into this episode and they will be presented by somebody else. Okay, so I guess that's our introduction, and I guess we'll jump straight into it, and we'll start with Fiona. Fiona's going to talk to you um, about Sally Clark, and basically tell you who she was.
2: Sally Clark was an only child, born August 1964 in Wiltshire. Her father was a senior police officer with Wiltshire Police, and her mother a hairdresser. Sally attended South Wilts Grammar School for Girls in Salisbury and went on to study geography at Southampton University. Sally went on to work as a management trainee with Lloyds Bank and Site Bank in London, England. Sally Lockyer met Steve Clark in London in 1988 whilst working at Site Bank. Steve Clark was a lawyer specialising in financial work. In 1990, two years later, Sally Lockyer married Steve Clarke, now known as Sally Clark, left her job and home in North London to train as a solicitor following in her new husband's steps. Sally studied at City University and went on to train at McFarland's, a city law firm. After qualifying as a solicitor, both Mr and Mrs Clark bought a house in Cheshire. Sally moved to work alongside her husband at a law firm known as Adelsaw Booth & Co. in Manchester in 1994. Steve and Sally Clark welcomed their first child together on the 26th of September 1996, Christopher Clark. Christopher was noted in documents to have been a healthy baby and the only notable medical history was a bleeding nose in December of 1996. On the 13th of December at 9.35pm Sally Clark called an ambulance to the family home as Christopher had become unconscious prior to being put to bed. Sally was alone with Christopher as Steve was at an office party. On the night of the 13th of December the ambulance workers described Sally as hysterical and was unfit to unlock the door to allow them to enter. It was evident that Christopher had been cyanosed for quite a time before help arrived. Christopher Clark was pronounced dead at 10.40pm after being transported to a local hospital. A post-mortem was performed by a home office pathologist, Dr Williams. Dr Williams reported finding bruises and abraded bruises on the body. Dr Williams stated that these findings were consistent with minor harm caused during attempts to resuscitate the infant. The case was treated as a case of sudden infant death syndrome, also known as caught death. Following this, Christopher Clark was cremated. After Christopher's birth and death, Sally Clark suffered from postnatal depression, but attended counselling at the Priory Clinic as part of the care of the next infant programme for parents who suffered a caught death. Sally recovered in time for the birth of her second son, Harry who arrived three weeks premature, but was a healthy baby, born the 29th of November, 1997. On the 26th of January, while Sally Clark was nursing the infant, Steve Clark went to get a night feed ready for Harry. While Steve was in a different room, Harry suddenly became unresponsive. Sally called her husband to aid, who went on to call an ambulance at 9.27pm on that evening. When paramedics arrived, Steve Clark was kneeling beside a lifeless baby on the bedroom floor. Harry was rushed to hospital, but despite efforts to resuscitate the infant, he was pronounced dead at 10.41 p.m. Sally Clark requested a specialist pathological examination of her son, Harry, a request also made by the hospital. However, the request was denied and once again, Dr. Williams performed the post-mortem examination. He found evidence which he understood to be indicative of a non-accidental injury, consistent with intervals of shaking on various occasions over a number of days. Dr. Williams concluded the cause of death for Harry Clark was shaking. The findings of Harry's post-mortem resulted in Dr. Williams reconsidering the cause of death of Christopher Clark. Dr. Williams consulted Professors Meadow and Professor Green for their opinion based on the medical evidence. Dr. Williams had a change of opinion and revisited the material that had been retained from Christopher's death and concluded that smothering was actually the most likely cause of death of Christopher Clark. Although agreeing with Dr. Williams, both Professor Meadow and Professor Green cautiously recommended the cause of death as unascertainable. No explanation was provided by Dr. Williams for his change of mind with respect to Christopher Clarke. It was not unusual for Dr. Williams to change his mind if new material had arose. This was not the case here. However, Dr. Williams did say he felt he hadn't fully considered the results of Christopher's post-mortem the first time due to lack of time. On the 23rd of February 1998, both Mr and Mrs Clark were arrested on suspicion of Harry's murder. Steve was released without no further charge. On the 9th of April 1998, Sally was further questioned in relation to Harry and was arrested on suspicion of the murder of her first son, Christopher. On the advice of her solicitor, Sally decided not to answer questions in her multiple interviews regarding her son's deaths. Sally Clark was charged with murder of both of her children, Christopher and Harry Clark.
1: So Fiona talks about a lot of things there, and there's three very important pieces of information that will be very helpful to remember as this episode goes on. Firstly, is the good character of the Clarks, uh, both Sally and her husband. Secondly, is what happened to Christopher and Harry. And you'll see as this plays on and we get to Dylan that this is actually very important and really, really, really important is um, what Dr. Williams does because Dr. Williams is the reason that the prosecution decide to bring a case and it's on foot of this that Sally is actually arrested. But Dylan will talk to you more on that now.
0: Sally was arrested and soon after charged with murdering both her children on the 23rd of February 1998. She was tried at Chester Crown Court before Mr Justice Harrison and a jury. Professor Roy Meadows was called as an expert witness. At the time of the trial, he was writing the preface to a government-funded research report which covered an extensive study of infant death cases in the UK and sought to establish possible risk factors for SIDS. He testified at trial that the chances of two babies from the one family suffering from sudden infant death syndrome was 1 in 73 million, and he likened it to backing an 80-to-1 outsider at the Grand National four years in a row and winning each time. He got this statistic By using the report's findings, that in an affluent family like the clerks, the chances of a SIDS death is 1 in 8,543, and the chances of it happening twice is that figure squared. However, the nature of SIDS is that it doesn't occur randomly. There can be many unknown underlying conditions that make particular families or family trees more susceptible to SIDS. As such, the chance of it happening to a family twice is not calculated by merely squaring the chance of it happening once. It is much more complex than that. There were many other expert witnesses, but Professor Meadow is by far the most controversial due to his oversimplification of the data and his relatable analogy. This opinion was no doubt the most persuasive of the lot. This evidence led to an occurrence of prosecutor's fallacy which occurs when the prosecutor shows that the innocent explanation for certain facts is highly improbable and from this the guilty explanation is therefore the only logical one. Another problem with Professor Meadow as an expert witness is that he was not qualified to give evidence on statistical data in the first place If a statistician was called to give evidence of statistical data in the trial and during their statement began to talk about the medical aspects of the case, the judge would stop them. He would strike the statement from the record and they would lose all credibility as an expert witness. But this did not happen when the reverse occurred with Professor Meadow. And similarly, Uh, Even though the Clark family fell into one of the categories listed in the study, namely non-smokers, at least one wage earner and a mother over 27, does not mean that the 1 in 8,543 statistic applies to them. This is what's known as the ecological fallacy, which is the assumption that data which is correct for a group is also correct for every individual within that group, which is a very dangerous assumption. Had issues such as these been addressed from the outset, the 1 in 73 million statistic would never have reached the jury, um, which definitely would have impacted the outcome. An equally significant issue regarding expert witnesses at the trial came from the medical evidence provided by Dr Williams, who performed the initial autopsy on both children, and Professor Green, a professor of forensic pathology at Sheffield University. Both of these experts changed their opinions and statements when it came to trial. Dr Williams initially ruled the first death as SIDS, and he referred the second death to Professor Green after finding signs of baby shaking he found the cause of death to be unascertained and it was on this basis that Dr Williams revisited his, init- his original findings and concluded the cause of death now to be smothering. Dr Williams' change of opinion was later described by the Court of Appeal as wholly unacceptable. A change of opinion is not uncommon amongst experts, but when it happens, it is usually backed up by new findings or new evidence missed the first time around, but all Doctor Williams said was that he didn't notice the evidence of smothering because he didn't have enough time to find it. Another significant problem with the medical evidence provided was Doctor Williams' um, his and his poor forensic evidence methodology. At the time of the initial autopsy of the second baby, he performed microbiological tests on the baby's blood, body tissue and spinal fluid but none of the results were disclosed to the defence or the prosecution even though they would have shown the cause of death as something other than smothering. At the time of the trial, The jury asked Dr. Williams if any such tests were carried out for the child and when he was called to the witness box to answer such questions, uh, they referred to his notes describing results which referred to samples taken for cultural and sensitivity tests. These samples would later be found uh, to be the tests showing the presence of the SA bacterium, also known as a staph infection, in the baby's spinal fluid. In his response to these questions, Dr Williams acknowledged he had failed to disclose the existence of such results at the time, and it was based on the omissions of the exculpatory evidence that Sally Clark was convicted of murdering both her children by a 10-2 majority verdict on the 9th of November 1999 and given two life sentences
1: so you've just heard from dylan there and dylan has brought up two very important aspects um, of the trial firstly he's talked about the statistical evidence presented by professor meadows which i'm going to talk about more now and he's also talked about the postmortem examinations carried out by dr williams which will be spoken about more later in this episode but first I want to talk about the statistical evidence of Professor Meadows and how the prosecutor's fallacy actually can occur in court. So I hope you all have your thinking caps on and I hope you're ready to get into this. So basically this is a question that was posed in this study and the question goes like this so a description of a murder case has just been given to you in which the killer's identity is unknown but the victim was known to have wounded the killer with a knife the police find some of the killer's blood at the crime scene and laboratory tests indicate that it's a rare blood type found in only one percent of the population so one person in 100 while questioning the victim's neighbors a detective notices that one man is wearing a bandage the detective believes that this man's overall guilt is about 10 percent later the detective receives some new evidence indicating that this suspect has the same rare blood type as the killer So, hope you've got all that. And if you haven't, you can just rewind this podcast and listen to all that again. And basically, you have to decide whether the detective should change how much, um, how guilty he thinks the suspect is based on the blood test evidence. And to do that, there are two arguments, let's say that are going to be presented one of them is being given by the prosecution and the other the defence so we'll do the prosecution um, argument first so the prosecution say that the blood test evidence is highly relevant the suspect has the same blood type as the attacker the blood type is found in only 1% of the population So there is only a 1% chance that the blood type found at the scene came from someone else other than the suspect. Since there is only a 1% chance that someone else committed the crime, there is a 99% chance that the suspect is guilty. So that's what the prosecution would say about this blood test evidence. But the defense would say this. The defense say, The evidence about blood types has very little relevance for this case. Only 1% of the population has this rare blood type. But in a city like the one which the crime occurred in um, with a population of about 200,000, this blood type would be found in approximately 2,000 people. Therefore, all the evidence shows is that this suspect is 1 in 2,000 people in the city who may have committed the crime. A 1 in 2,000 chance of guilt based on the blood test evidence has very little relevance for proving this suspect is guilty. So if you're really um, into that example and you're trying to think of where you stand on that, you I'd invite you to pause this episode and have a think and then jump back in. So you're jumping back in and you want to know what that all means. Well, basically, both of those two arguments are false. Um, The first one is testing whether the prosecutor's fallacy will actually prevail or whether the defense attorney's fallacy will actually prevail. I think that both of those are very interesting. Now the results of this study were that 68.5% of the test subjects uh, labeled the defense argument as correct while 28.8% labeled the prosecution argument as correct and only 22.2% recognized that both arguments are actually incorrect so when we're having um when we're talking about the statistics in trials This is very, very important to understand the risk of the prosecutor's fallacy and indeed the defense um, I won't say attorneys, the defense side's uh, fallacy as well. But that uh, I hope explains how uh, the prosecutor's fallacy actually uh, can occur and did occur in this case and now we are going to move on to Liam. Liam is going to talk to us a bit about the um, second appeal and I will also jump in after that with more about the appeal.
3: In the Clark case, the probate of value and the relevance of the statistical evidence was dependent on its interpretation by the jury and their competency to do so. The Court of Appeal originally held that they were assumed competent to appreciate his weight. However, in the second Court of Appeal decision, they were not deemed competent to interpret the evidence, which would leave them open to forming improper or otherwise inadmissible opinions regarding his statistical evidence. Professor Meadows explained that he calculated the chance of two infants dying (coughs) of SIDS by taking the probability of one dying, which was, in his case, one in 8000 and squaring the denominator giving him a result of 1 in 73 million although this calculation was mathematically correct this was deemed to be illegitimate oversimplification by another medical expert therefore although it may be mathematically correct in an arbitrary sense the 1 in 73 million figure did not factor in outside variables and thus the jury could not be deemed competent to interpret it as its probate value was outweighed by the prejudicial effect. In the first appeal, the court took the view that if neither counsel nor the judge were able to apprehend Professor Meadows to be giving evidence on the statistical probability of Mr of Mrs. Clark's innocence, it was therefore unlikely that the jury would interpret his evidence in this manner
1: we've just heard more there about the statistical evidence of uh, professor meadows and like i said earlier i'm going to talk more about the uh, post-mortems that were carried out by dr williams they found that dr williams was incompetent and that there were signs of his incompetence um, in the trial and basically they highlight some of, some of the biggest issues as being uh, these. So they talk about um, the death of Christopher and um, how Dr. Williams changed his mind. The a reason that he gave a trial was that um, he didn't have enough time to fully complete his examination as there was mounting pressure for a, a funeral to happen. The second thing that the court of appeal um went to among other things was that um so on the examination that was carried out on harry there were tests done to his eyes effectively there was tests done to his eyes to see if there was trauma so basically dr williams had inflicted the damage that showed there was trauma and they One of the prosecution experts actually agreed with the defense experts on this that Dr. Williams himself had done the damage post-mortem. The Court of Appeal said that this should have been indicative of um, some of the incompetence of Dr. Williams. And as Dylan said earlier, the um, cerebrospinal fluid or CSF tests were not really acknowledged by Dr. Williams. So the court actually looked into this issue because this was ultimately what allowed Sally Clark to have um, a second appeal. They, the results of these tests actually showed, as Dylan said, that there was the S.A. bacterium present. Effectively, this meant that Harry had more than likely died from natural causes. But Dr. Williams didn't uh, reveal the results of this test. Now, the court um, discussed whether this was done maliciously, whether it was done on purpose, and they decided that it had not been, um, and that Dr. Williams was simply incompetent, and that he must have uh, received the results of the test and since they didn't um, conform with his opinion in that uh, Harry had died from smothering and or, um, baby shaking that uh, basically the